0: With me today is John D'Amelio, Professor Emeritus of History and of Gender and Women's Studies at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Among his many publications are the classic books, Sexual Politics, Sexual Communities, The Making of a Homosexual Minority in the United States, and with Estelle Friedman, Intimate Matters, A History of Sexuality in America. Most recently, he's authored Memories of a Gay Catholic Boyhood, Coming of Age in the 60s. His award-winning book, Lost Prophet, The Life and Times of Bayard Rustin, is the subject of our discussion today, as we also review George Wolfe's film, Rustin, starring Coleman Domingo as the charismatic Rustin, now streaming on Netflix. Welcome to KBOO, John D'Amelio. Thank you for having me. Well, John, first tell us what you think the film gets right, and then we can discuss the significance of Rustin's work before and after the 1963 march on Washington.
1: Okay. Well, let me start then with my favorite scenes from the film. I loved those moments that happened a couple of times when the film shows Bayard in the large office with young activists working on the march on washington and him speaking to them and you can feel their excitement and enthusiasm about what he's saying and what he wants from them and almost every person that i interviewed when i was doing the biography of bayard talked about his charisma His capacity to motivate people and get them moving to make change and fight for social justice. And those scenes I felt captured the essence of of Bayard as an activist. Meanwhile, in a broader sense, the filmmakers were very smart, I thought, to create something that focuses on the 1963 March on Washington. One, because it's an event that people can identify with and have heard about and also because it's an event that requires the centering of Bayard to the story, since he was the chief organizer of this March on Washington, even though he remained largely invisible to the public. And what I thought they got very right was not only his capacity as an organizer, but the way organizing that march and having Bayard be involved created all of these tensions and simmering conflicts within the black freedom struggle among its leadership because of Bayard's gayness and the worry that his gayness would have the effect of marginalizing the March on Washington and discrediting the event. And you could see that played out throughout the film And one piece of history that I thought they capture very well is the way A. Philip Randolph was the one African-American leader who always stood by Rustin and defended him. So in many ways, I I thought the film was very successful in what it strove to portray about Bayard and his role in history.
0: And the film certainly rescues Bayard Rustin from obscurity. At least I think most Americans don't know about him and that he was such an important activist who left a huge imprint on so many social movements in the 20th century. And you write that there are three main reasons why we don't know more about Rustin. And you mentioned his gayness, You know, he was a gay man that certainly marginalized him during his lifetime and and, in historians sort of retrospective look at the civil rights movement. But what are the other reasons why you think we don't know more about Rustin and he's not in the popular civil rights canon?
1: That's right. Well, one reason is because he wasn't simply a fighter for racial justice and racial equality, but Bayard would be defined today as a democratic socialist. He had had a small period of involvement with the Communist Party in the late 1930s, but when he left party-related organizations, but he always remained committed to a socialist, a democratic socialist point of view, seeing capitalism as something that by its very nature, seriously exploited people and created structural inequality. And in the context of the Cold War of the 1940s, 1950s, and 1960s, being an advocate for socialism, when the United States is leading the free world in a fight against communism and the left, that is going to keep Bayard on the sidelines and not give him a lot of credit and favorable public view. The other thing that made him less visible was he was a Quaker and he He didn't grow up as a Quaker, but he grew up in a Quaker-dominated town in a Quaker environment. And as a young adult, he joined a Quaker meeting in New York that he remained a part of for 50 years. And this helped shape his activism and motivated him. But one aspect of of Quakerism is that you don't put yourself forward. You, You fight for the cause. You fight for what you believe in. But it's not about you. It's not about standing on the podium and letting the world see you. And so Rustin, combined, combined with his leftism and his sexual identity, his Quakerism led Rustin to develop a style of activism that accomplished a lot, but that didn't call attention to himself. So he, he was the
0: consummate he, organizer.
1: Yes he was he was an organizer who cared about the results, not about the attention he might get.
0: Well, as you pointed out, even though the film does, reveal the kind of intense organizing and efforts of many people, especially young women who are in the office calling up folks around the country and and organizing the many details that the march would require. And A. Philip Randolph is central in the film, but it seems to me the film downplays the role of the economic justice component of the march and The role of labor and the labor movement in organizing the march. Well, Um, yes.
1: And I mean, I think the reason for that is because, and, you know, it's in terms of history, it is less than a complete view of history. I think in the context of the film, the reason for it is that the film is choosing to focus very much on Bayard Rustin, the organizer and what he was up against at that time. So it allows you to see a racial justice movement, which is a primary motivation, and the conflicts within that movie around Bayard's sexuality. But you're correct. It doesn't highlight the way in which organized labor And notions of economic injustice figured into both the goals of the movement and who supporters of the movement were. I mean, A. Philip Randolph, who is the formal head of the March on Washington, was the head of a labor union. And he had ties not only with the labor union that he led, the Pullman car porters, but with the AFL-CIO, which in the late 50s and early 60s was at its strongest position in history with large numbers of people. And many of those unions supported the march and contributed to having buses of their members go to Washington, DC. So yes, there is a, a more complicated story of interrelated organizing issues that the movie doesn't highlight, but was very much a part of the motivation behind the March on Washington and the goals of the March on Washington, and of someone like Bayard Rustin.
0: Well, your beautifully written biography of Rustin is the first to locate sexuality as a central feature and not a peripheral detail of Rustin's life and activism. But as I understand, you you came to that understanding a little later as you were doing this research on Rustin.
1: That's right. I mean, when I, when I started working on the Rustin biography, even though my previous work had been on LGBTQ history and the history of sexuality, I wasn't focusing on Rustin because of his gayness. I mean, I knew that was going to somehow fit in, but it wasn't the issue. I wanted to write about the 1960s. And what attracted me to Rustin is that Rustin defied the dichotomies that we tend to associate with the 1960s, like there's a civil rights movement or there's an anti-war movement there's national politics, or there's local grassroots activism. Rustin crossed all those lines in his in his organizing work. He was part of a peace movement. He was part of anti-war act- activism. He favored economic justice, as I said earlier, and democratic socialism. He supported the labor movement. And obviously, he was, you know, peace movement and the civil rights movement were central to his life. And so I thought that writing about Rustin would allow me to write about the 1960s in a different way. But then, as I actually started doing the research and learning more about his life, I came to discover that, oh my god, Rustin's homosexuality in the 1940s, 1950s, and 1960s kept surfacing as something that threatened to destroy his public career and that he had to fight against. And and that got him into trouble, not only with activists, but with also the government and police and things like that. And so as it became a biography that covers the 1960s rather than just a book about the 1960s, Rustin's sexual identity became not the major part of the story, but woven into the whole story of his career and his activism.
0: And it does seem like the film provides some hint about what it was like to be gay in the 1960s even. But, you know, that almost constant awareness of his vulnerability and... And why so many men and women responded by staying in the closet and just this powerful indictment of homophobia and Cold War anti-communism that targeted so-called sexual deviance and political radicals.
1: Yes, absolutely. That is one of the strengths of the film, that it doesn't hide Rustin's sexual identity and the way others felt about it, but it makes it an integral part of the narrative line and the story that unfolds during the summer of 1963. And one of the major things to take away from both the film and the story of Rustin's life is that working on the March on Washington and the tremendous success of the March on Washington and the need of other civil rights leaders to support Rustin, the organizer of this event, so that the event would succeed, it marks really, that year really marks the end of of significant attacks on Rustin because of his sexuality from within activist circles. So it proved to be a, a turning point for him personally.
0: Well, that's interesting. Now the the film makes slight reference to FBI attempts to destroy Rustin. And you actually dove into those FBI surveillance reports. Did did they reveal or what did they reveal to you as you were working on the biography?
1: Well, it it made it clear to me how deeply the FBI was investigating people who were known to be or thought to be gay. And the way the FBI used that information when it effectively supported J. Edgar Hoover's anti-communist and extremely conservative political views. So it became an, an opportunity to discredit people and to, you know, in the in his greatest hopes, paralyze movements for social change. And, you know, one example of that is in 1963, during the organizing of the March on Washington, the FBI passes on to Strom Thurmond, who is a segregationist senator from South Carolina, that Rustin had a record of arrest on what then would have been called sexual perversion charges and you know the senator uses that information to attack rustin on the floor of the united states senate
0: well what happens to rustin after the march on washington do you want to say something about his inc- i mean what i see is is increasing blending of political pragmatism with his activism and commitments to social and economic justice?
1: Yes. Well, one of the things that the march accomplishes by by putting Rustin in a place kind of at the center of a movement that was mainstreaming at the time and dealing not just protest on the ground, but with the nation's capital and the lawmakers and elected officials. Is that it made Rustin, who had been an activist working on the margins, you know, among outsiders, it made Rustin see the importance of progressive activists needing to work their way into the mainstream political system. Because to the degree that you always remained a protester, you would always be on the outside, depending on other people to make the decisions that shaped policy, as opposed to somehow making your way inside and holding true to the principles that you believed in. and. One of the ways this expressed itself was that in 1965, Bayard wrote an article from Protest to Politics that appeared in a mainstream periodical in which he essentially argued, and he was speaking primarily to the civil rights movement, but also to the peace and anti-war movement, that we had to not just protest, but we had to engage with and in the political system. And some of his longtime activist friends considered it a betrayal. They thought that Bayard was selling out. But I tell you, if you read from protest to politics today, it really continues to speak to the present. you you realize, oh, you know, we have one political party where, protesters did get involved and become the mainstream of that party. And we have another party where the protesters have remained on the outside. And so it's Bayard, what Bayard thought and what Bayard did still speaks 50, 60 years later.
0: Well, John D'Amelio, let me rephrase a question you actually posed some years ago, what would happen if we inserted and fully into the popular narrative of the civil rights movement?
1: Uh, yes, well, my thoughts about it may have changed in the 20 years since I wrote that, but it's what we would understand is the way movements need to be linked and the way movements need to embrace a range of methods, For making change that we can't all be in the bubble of our single separate movements, but we need to work together for progressive change. And we need to do that as both outsiders and potentially insiders as well.
0: Well, thank you so much, John D'Amelio. This is Lori Mercier for the Old Mole Variety Hour. I've been speaking with the historian John D'Amelio, author of Lost Prophet, The Life and Times of Bayard Rustin, about the film Rustin, starring Coleman Domingo, now streaming on Netflix. I do recommend that listeners read D'Amelio's book, which we'll link to on the Old Mole Variety Hour website. Thanks, John, for joining us today on KBOO.
1: Thank you very much. I need you You need me Now we're all in it together we got to get it right We've all got to get it together Everybody's on the same side I gave up on was hurt.